Welcome to Valley Baptist University, an online ministry of Valley Baptist Church, where we seek to worship God with all our minds. I'm Eric Hahn, Dean of VBU. This segment is part three on the subject Christianity versus the new spirituality, or sometimes called progressive Christianity. Today we explore the question, is all of humanity one with God? Hey everyone, welcome back. Have you ever heard someone say something like, I just think everyone will end up going to heaven. I mean, we're all children of God and God is love. Sometimes that's meant by people purely from a sentimental basis, but often it stems from this new spirituality that we've been looking at in this series. We've been on a study series of Christianity versus the new spirituality, or what's sometimes called progressive Christianity. And this is often what people say they are deconstructing into from their Christian faith. Now, I want to do a quick recap of what is common in their beliefs. For the progressive Christian, God is one with everything, or all is one. That's this oneism idea, which is opposed to the biblical view of God, where God remains distinct from his creation, which is twoism. The progressive Christian view is you need to discover your divine within or your own Christ consciousness. The biblical view is you are to believe on Jesus Christ, who is a distinct person from yourself. The other view is that you are the creator of your own truth, where truth is relative or subjective. And the biblical Christian view is that truth is objective. There is that which is truth and false, and it's true or false whether or not anyone believes it. Last time we looked at the progressive Christian view that all religions are essentially one. They're simply uh, all blended into one in their core ideas. And we looked at how both biblically and reasonably, there's simply no way all religions and worldviews can blend into one without dissolving their core tenets or even without embracing blatant contradictions. In fact, in the Christian context, there is the gospel. Then there's those who try to teach another gospel. Today, we're looking at the progressive Christian idea that all humanity is one with God. And just saying that, you can hear how it stems from this oneist worldview, since everything's one with God, including humans. Then finally, ultimately, Every human will experience some version of heaven with God. This is called universalism. Universalism is the idea that everyone will be saved or even that everyone is already saved. A little bit of history on this. The first record of this connected in any way with Christianity is the ancient false teaching of the Gnostics. And this was refuted very early on by a number of the church fathers, especially with Irenaeus. Later, it surfaced in an ancient individual, someone sometimes thought of as a father. His name was Origen. There is someone named Jerome who used to put it this way. He said that when you look at the church fathers, it's like a mixture of weeds and flowers. And that especially applies to Origen. Origen even held that the devil and his angels will ultimately be saved. 
And Origen seemed to be picking up on this from the Gnostic idea that everything pre-existed and then returns to its source. There's that oneism idea. And Origen also seemed to have kind of a sentimental attitude about it, of, of wanting to believe this because it feels good. Now, this was never actually affirmed by any ecumenical council. In fact, Origen by name was refuted by what's called the Fifth Ecumenical Council. And yet people try to derive this teaching from the Bible. And in order to do that, it requires endless gyrations of sleight of hand logic, if not just an outright rejection of the biblical teaching. Now, I want to say this, something that's been suggested about the progressive Christians is that the authors are only exploring this idea. This is very common with Rob Bell. In fact, he wrote a very popular book called Love Wins, which assumes this universalist teaching, but he uses this typical rhetorical style of asking questions. Well, what if there's no hell? What if everybody just goes to heaven? What if the gospel isn't really exclusive, but there's all kinds of different roads? And then we go back to the subject of truth just being relative to whatever our what-ifs are that we come up with. The book was so popular, in fact, in 2011, Bell's book even made the cover of Time magazine, along with his questioning style provocation, which is on the cover. What if there's no hell? Now, fortunately, others have not just used the rhetorical inquiring style. William Paul Young, author of The Shack, in his follow-up book, Lies We Believe About God, point blank describes himself as a universalist because he says, are people asking me, are you suggesting that everyone is saved, that you believe in universal salvation? And Paul Young says, that is exactly what I'm saying. Not only that, Richard Rohr in his book uses the word universal in the title, the universal Christ, and to no surprise, it includes the universalist teaching. Richard Rohr says God loves things by uniting with them, not by excluding them. So there you see the oneist ideology and the universalism, how no one will ever be excluded from God and his blessing. Now, C.S. Lewis already addressed this years ago in his famous book, The Problem of Pain. Not only did Lewis say that this was not affirmed in the Bible, this has not been affirmed in church history, but Lewis even uses the rational argument, and he even pays homage a little to the sentimentality. He says it's not that we don't want people to all be saved. He says, I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. But then he says this, if we're saying that though, is that without their will or with it? In other words, Lewis is saying that we can call God a God of love, but forced love is a contradiction in terms. Lewis is suggesting that God dignifies us in a loving way by giving us a choice. There are still those that would say and push back, well, it's just not just. God isn't lovingly just because, to put it this way, the time doesn't fit the crime. In other words, why is there an eternal punishment for temporal sin? 
Again, I defer to Lewis, who draws from the ancient Christian thinker named Boethius, once again from the problem of pain. He says, if we think of eternity as a mere prolongation of time, perhaps it's disproportionate, but he says many would reject this idea of eternity. When I had Dr. J.P. Moreland here at our church, I talked to him about this, and he said, yes, this is a viable pushback against the argument of God's justice and the time doesn't fit the crime. Even still, there is so much attempted usage of the scripture to support universalism. In fact, Dr. Michael McClyman, a seminary professor in St. Louis, has done an extensive research on the history of universalism. And one of his conclusions is, is describing universalism as the opiate of the theologians. In other words, in a confirmation bias kind of way, theologians try to read into the text because it feels good, because it seems to satisfy our own desires, whereas it's not exegeting the text to see what the text really says. Some examples of trying to use the scripture to support universalism are found in Paul Young's writings. He says in this book, Lies We Believe About God, he says, every single human being is in Christ. And then he puts John 1.3. Well, John 1.3 simply says that all things were made through Christ. He also fails to go down in John chapter 1 to later verses in 11 and 12 where it explicitly says Jesus came to his own, his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. You see, someone who says, well, we're all children of God, well, we're all creatures of God. But in a biblical sense, we become children of God by believing in his son, Jesus Christ. Becoming children of God and salvation is conditional on Christ and our belief in him. Another one of the proof texts Young uses in the appendix of his book for universalism is he takes John chapter 3 and verse 17 and he says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And there he reads into the text that the world means that all the world will be saved. But conveniently, Paul Young ignores the very next verse in the text, John 3, 18, where it says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's so many other places we could go, but in Luke 16, Jesus talks about eternal life and eternal death and the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus says there is a great goal fixed, and so there is no passing, which coheres with Hebrews 9:27. It's appointed for man once to die, then the judgment. In Revelation 21:8, it talks about in the final eschaton that there will be the lake of fire called the second death. And that's for the beast, the devil, the false prophet, and for all those who are outside of Christ.
Jesus uses all these contrasting metaphors. In Matthew 13, he talks about the wheat and the tares. In Matthew 25, he talks about the sheep and the goats. You notice he doesn't call these blended the wares or blended the shoats. <laughs> no, no, they're contrasted. There's, there's twoism. In fact, the final judgment in the book of Revelation, and that's where we get the word revelation. It means reveal from the Greek apocalypsis. It reveals who God is in a visible theophonic encounter, but it also reveals who we are. It reveals the people who belong to Christ or not. In Matthew 13, Jesus told the disciples, wait for that final revealing, then there will be a final authoritative separation of the wheat and the tares. Concerning Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats and that revealing, it says in the very last verse, and these, the goats, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, righteous in Christ, into eternal life. You will note by studying the original Greek that those are the same term used in that verse for each word, eternal life, everlasting punishment. Both come from the same Greek word, ionios. And not only is it the same word, but it's used in the same verse. So somebody says, well, they're used differently in different contexts. This is the exact same context, the exact same first. In fact, if you were to say that there's no eternal punishment, you would have to say that there's no eternal heaven. And so this coheres that the same eternity and condition that applies to heaven, the same eternity and condition applies to hell. And Mark 9 coheres with this, where the fire is not quenched, the worm does not die. Now, very simply, something that I talk to people about, just because you've moved beyond Sunday school or Awana verses that you learned as a child, and all of us hopefully have, as we've grown as Christians, we know more than John 3.16 or Romans 10.9. That doesn't mean those verses aren't true. And that doesn't mean that you can take some obscure passage and read into those and say, oh, well, since I've moved beyond these verses that I learned in the third grade, then maybe those verses don't apply to me anymore. Rest assured they do. In Romans 10.9, it says, if, conditionally, conditionally, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13, for whoever, not whoever is a human is saved, not whoever is one with God, not whoever uh, just remembers his true identity finally in the end. No, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Having heard this simple presentation of the gospel today that Jesus died for you and rose, why wait? Why not today repent and believe in the Lord Jesus for eternal abundant life for what we do know about what the scripture teaches? Now, a little preview, the next two sessions We've been basing these ideas of the progressive Christian reality, of a reality without distinctions, oneism. 
Well, we're gonna look next time about the very provocative subject of gender distinctions. Then are there gender distinctions if there's no human distinctions? We're also gonna look the time after that. If truth is all relative, then is there any moral objectivity or is all morality relative? So we'll see you next time when we look at those subjects. Thank you for being with us here at VBU. For further reading on this, see the book, The Other Worldview by Dr. Peter Jones, and more specifically for today's topic, the book, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. We'll see you next time for segment number six of this series, as we entertain the question, are there no intended gender distinctions?